What kind of man was Jacob? This is the question that cries out to us in episode after episode of his life. The first time we hear a description of him, he's called an Ishtam, a simple, quiet, plain, straightforward man. But that's exactly what he seems not to be. We see him taking Esau's birthright in exchange for a bowl of soup. We see him taking Esau's blessing in borrowed clothes, taking advantage of their father's blindness. These are troubling episodes. We can read them midrashically. The Midrash makes Jacob all good and Esau all bad. It rereads the biblical text to make it consistent with the highest standards of the moral life, and there's much to be said for this approach. Alternatively, we could say that in these cases, the end justifies the means. In the case of the birthright, Jacob might have been testing Esau to see if he really cared about it. Since he gave it away so readily, Jacob might have been right in concluding that it should go to somebody who valued it. In the case of the blessing, Jacob was obeying his mother, who'd received a divine oracle saying that the older shall serve the younger. Yet the text remains disturbing. Isaac says to Esau, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau says, isn't he rightly named Yaakov, supplanter? He supplanted me these two times. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. You don't hear similar accusations against any other biblical hero. Nor does the story end there. In this week's parasha, a similar deceit is practiced on him. After his wedding night, he discovers that he's married Leah, not, as he thought, his beloved Rachel. He complains to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Laban replies, Lo yeas ekein bim komenu, it is not done in our place to give the younger before the firstborn. It's hard not to see this as a precise measure-for-measure measure retribution. The younger Jacob pretended to be the older Esau, now the older Leah has been disguised as the younger Rachel. A fundamental principle of biblical morality is at work here. Mida keneged mida, measure-for-measure, as you do so shall you be done to. Yet the web of deception continues. After Rachel has given birth to Joseph, Jacob wants to return home. He's been with Lavan with Laban long enough. Laban urges him to stay and tells him to name his price. Jacob embarks on an extraordinary course of action. He tells Laban he wants no wages at all. He says, let Laban remove every spotted or streaked lamb from the flock and every streaked or spotted goat. Jacob will then keep as his hire any newborn spotted or streaked animals that are born to this unspotted, unstreaked flock. It's an offer that speaks simultaneously to Laban's greed and his ignorance. He seems to be getting Jacob's labor almost for nothing. After all, the chance of unspotted animals giving birth to spotted offspring seems very remote. Jacob knows better. In charge of the flocks, he goes through an elaborate procedure involving peeled branches of poplar, almond, and plane trees, which he places with their drinking water. The result is, we read, that they do in fact produce streak and spotted offspring. How exactly this happened has intrigued the commentators. 
Most of them assume that it was some miracle God's way of assuring Jacob's welfare. But scientists argue that Jacob must have had a basic knowledge of genetics because two unspotted sheep can produce spotted offspring because they have recessive genes. Jacob had doubtless noticed this after many years of tending Laban's flocks. Others have suggested that prenatal nutrition can have an epigenetic effect. That is, it can cause a certain gene to be expressed, which might not have happened otherwise. Had the peeled branches of poplar, almond, and plane trees been added to the water the sheep drank, some organism under the bark might have affected the agouti gene that determines the color of fur in sheep and mice. Anyway, however it happened, the result was dramatic. Jacob became rich. In this way, says the Bible, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and manservants and camels and donkeys. Inevitably, Laban and his sons felt cheated. Jacob sensed their displeasure and having taken counsel with his wives and being advised by God himself that he should leave, departs while Laban is away sheep shearing. Laban eventually discovers that Jacob has fled and pursues him for seven days, catching up with him in the mountains of Gilad. The text at this point is fraught with accusation and counter-accusation. Laban and Jacob both feel that they have been cheated. They both believe that the flocks and herds are rightfully theirs. They both regard themselves as the victims of the other's deceitfulness. The end result is that Jacob finds himself forced to run away from Laban as he was earlier forced to run away from Esau, in both cases in fear of his life. So the question returns, what kind of man was Jacob? He seems anything but an Ishtam, a straightforward man. And surely this is not the way for a religious role model to behave, in such a way that first his father, then his brother, then his father-in-law accuse him of deceit. What kind of story is the Torah telling us in the way it narrates the life of Jacob? One way of approaching an answer is to look at a specific literary character, often a hare, or in African-American tradition, the character of Br'er Rabbit, in the folk tales of oppressed people. Henry Louis Gates, the American literary critic, has argued that such figures represent the creative way the slave community responded to the oppressor's failure to address them as human beings created in the image of God. Such oppressed individuals have a fragile body but a deceptively strong mind, using their intelligence to outwit their stronger opponents, they're able to deconstruct and subvert in small ways the hierarchy of dominance that favors the rich and the strong. These characters represent the momentary freedom of the unfree, a protest against the random injustices of the world. And that, it seems to me, is what Jacob represents in this, the early phase of his life. He enters the world as the younger of two twins. His brother is strong, ruddy, hairy, a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while he is quiet, a scholar. Then he has to confront the fact that his father loves his brother more than him. 
And then he finds himself at the mercy of Laban, a possessive, exploitative, and deceptive figure who takes advantage of his vulnerability. Jacob is the man who, as almost all of us do at some time or other, discovers that life is unfair. What Jacob shows by his sheer quick-wittedness is that the strength of the strong can also be their weakness. So it is when Esau comes in exhausted from the hunt and is willing impetuously to trade his birthright for some soup. So it is when the blind Isaac is prepared to bless the son who will bring him venison to eat. So it is when Laban hears the prospect of getting Jacob's labor for free. Every strength has its Achilles heel, its weakness, and this can be used by the weak to gain victory over the strong. Jacob represents the refusal of the weak to accept the hierarchy created by the strong. His acts are a kind of defiance, an insistence on the dignity of the weak vis-à-vis Esau, or the less loved vis-à-vis Isaac, or the refugee in Laban's house. In this sense, he is one element of what historically it has been to be a Jew. But the Jacob we see in these chapters is not the figure whom ultimately we are called on to emulate. And we can see why. Jacob wins his battles with Esau and Laban, but only at the cost of eventually having to flee in fear of his life. Quick-wittedness is only a temporary solution. It is only later, after his wrestling match with the angel, that he receives a new name, that is, a new identity as Yisrael, Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. As Israel, he is unafraid to contend with people face to face. He no longer needs to outwit them by clever, but ultimately futile stratagems. His children will eventually become the people whose dignity lies in the unbreakable covenant they make with God. Yet we can see something of Jacob's early life In one of the most remarkable features of Jewish history, for almost 2,000 years, Jews were looked down on as pariahs. Yet they refused to internalize that image. Just as Jacob refused to accept the hierarchies of power or affection that condemned him to be a mere second best, they, like Jacob, relied not on physical strength or material wealth, but on qualities of mind. In the end, though, Jacob must become Israel because it is not the quick-witted victor but the hero of moral courage who ultimately stands tall in the eyes of humanity and God. Shabbat Shalom.